You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. Uh, today we're going to talk about sex in church. So if uh, you got kids in here, we would say today's PG-13. So if you have little ones, you may want to grab them now. You may want to run, do not walk. You may want to take them immediately or you're answering questions. Jay's out of here. He's just, there he goes. Um, he, uh, I just want to let you know that we're going we're gonna to keep it a little PG-13 today, otherwise you're explaining questions uh, later on. And so um, I want to appreciate uh, Ronnie Brakes for preaching last week on honoring your parents, and that was uh, great to have him step in. For me, my, my grandma passed away, and, uh, and she was a believer in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, there's a huge difference when somebody knows the Lord and they pass away for how we grieve and how, uh, what a memorial looks like. Um, my grandpa and my grandma were married for 71 years. Married. Yeah, it was crazy, right? So they were like in their 20s, and then they got married, and then 71 more years, they, you know, they uh, were married. In the last couple of years, they've been in an assisted living uh, facility in Simi Valley, California, and we would go down and visit. And about the last nine months, my grandma, she just deteriorated to where she was. She just didn't leave the bed really, uh, you know, for anything, and uh, could communicate only sometimes, and, and just wasn't, you know, in what you and I would consider really living, as she wrestled with death, and uh, was finally released to be in the presence of the Lord, and so we went down to do a memorial service, and so um, the, the guy who officiated was actually, at one point, my kindergarten principal. He was, at one point, my, my uh, high school pastor. Uh, at one point, I was his boss. There's a flip for you, right? <laughs> And uh, a little payback time. I remember when you gave me a SWAT, you know. Um, but, uh, but he taught their Sunday school class for years and was exactly the right person to do that. And so it was just really sweet. I did a little speaking part of it. And then he did the service. And at the end, my grandpa goes, well, there's some things I'd like to say. And so he's on the front row. And he kind of stands up with his walker. And my grandpa's just, he's like shrunken. He's like bent over. He's, he looks a little bit like Yoda. Like, things to tell you I will, you know, that kind of thing. And so... He like turns around, he's got his walker, and he puts little locks on it, and, and Pastor Mac, the guy who officiated, he came down right behind my grandpa because, because like there's stairs, and if my grandpa stepped back, he would like, you know, fall down, break a hip, we might have to put him down too, and so, so he's there to protect him, and so we're listening to my grandpa, he's just sharing some sweet things, and, and, he's, and he's pretty funny, and uh, so he's saying some kind of funny stuff to you, and then all of a sudden he goes, my pants are falling down, and sure enough, just whew, to the floor. Now, he must have listened to, like, the modesty talk because he had, like, his dress shirt on, which used to fit him, but now it's, like, down to his knees. You know, it certainly covered up everything essential, you know. And uh, so Pastor Mac is, like, grabbing one side because my grandpa, like, he can't let go because, you know, he's, like, holding the walker. He can't, can't get down there. And so my uncle runs in from the other side, picks him up, cinches the belt, you know. And my cousin's like, Dad, to, you know, my uncle, my cousin's like, Dad, you had one job. Just since the band's belt. And my uncle's like, what? He walked in here, you know, like made it all the way in. Perfect way to end, you know, a, a memorial service. And so he laughed, I laughed. And my grandpa's got a great sense of humor anyway. But, you know, Pastor Mac, the guy who officiated, was like, oh, Gene, always looking for attention, you know. And just, so we had this like hilarious moment at the end. But it's just so different when you grieve as one who knows the Lord. But I'm watching my grandparents who made a marriage covenant and fulfilled that covenant for 71 years till death do them part. And uh, just beautiful to be able to see so unique, 
really, in our culture. And uh, I want today, as we begin to talk about uh, sex, as we talk about a marriage covenant, for just first of all, you to just, whether you are in a tough marriage right now, whether you have had a failed marriage, whether you've had a set of failed relationships and you're a single, or whether you're single again, any of those kind of things, I want you just to sit back for a minute and rest. There is no condemnation for you here today that we want you to hear God's intent when it comes to sex and God's intent when it comes to a marriage covenant and what that can look like. So will you pray with me just as we begin uh, this morning? Jesus, we realize that a few things affect our lives, uh, like the issue of our sexuality. And God, we want a healthy perspective on it and what it looks like in a marriage covenant. And so God, would you just let your Holy Spirit speak to each heart today exactly what is needed for us to hear, God, we love you. We thank you that your presence is here, that you care about what goes on in our lives, and uh, that, God, you first and foremost love us. We're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our culture gets the issue of sex a little bit messed up. Our culture says, you know, sex is everything. Like, it's in marketing and research, and it just, you know, it's always there in the TV. And, and even if you've watched over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, you've seen since the sexual revolution just the issue of our sexuality and culture explode. And they say, it's everything. And then they flip around and they go, and it's no big deal. And that's a backwards message, right? Because they say, it's everything. It's this huge, massive thing. It's so important. And then they go, oh, but it's really casual. It's no big deal. And the truth is, that's not the reality of how God created sex. I mean, there's many things that can frustrate relationships, Right? I mean, all sorts of things can frustrate relationships like bad habits that somebody has just annoys you or maybe it's the wet towels on the floor or it's watching your spouse try to parallel park or maybe it's just that you have core values that you're at odds with their core value and, and they can cause, but few things can affect relationships more deeply than sex. You may have heard Les Dawson, a comedian, say, uh, my wife is a sex object. Every time I mention sex, she objects. <laughs> or maybe you heard the elderly couple, the sweet little old lady said to her husband of many years, said, honey, let's go upstairs and make love. To which he replied, you choose. We can do one, but not both. <laughs> right? Because there's age and everything affects us. Sex is powerful. And at the same time, it's a mystery. And our culture gets it a little bit backwards. Taking notes today, and I highly encourage you to, you've got an outline in your program. And one of the first things you want to realize is that God created sex. God was the inventor of it. He thought it up. He designed our bodies to work that way. God was the initiator, the one who created sex. I think sometimes we have this picture that Adam and Eve, or, or you know, as the first humans, just ran around the garden and they didn't know what to do and they had a lot of time in their hands and they just kind of figured out stuff. And that's not true. God created it as an expression between a husband and a wife. And the first book of the Bible, Genesis, kind of points back. It shows us how the first humans came into being and, and, uh, and uh, how God created them and then how they ended up hooking up. And let me uh, show you that here for a minute. If you look at Genesis chapter 2 in the poetic version of creation uh, found in the Bible in Hebrew, the language, it says this. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And so as you see here in the beginning, that's what Adam, he's looking around and going, naming all the animals, and there's no helper suitable for me. Everything has a pair except for me is what he's thinking. So God calls him to fall asleep, creates Eve. He wakes up. He's been in the habit of naming, you know, just all these different things. He wakes up, and he goes, whoa, man. He goes, I'll take her. He says, wrap her up. No, wait, don't wrap her in anything. I'll take her just like she is. I'm just going to take her. Come on. And he just is like, that's a helper suitable for me. And right away, God just, just makes a helpmate in his life. And it's important to realize that sex existed for Adam and Eve in the garden before sin entered the garden. I want you to catch that, that sex preceded sin on earth. Sin hadn't arrived yet, hadn't shown up. Temptation hadn't reared its ugly head yet, hadn't shown up. God invented, created this very holy thing between two people. And since then, since sin came along and hijacked our sexuality, Satan will do everything he can to get unmarried people into bed before they're married and everything he can to keep married people out of it. Because what he loves to do is come in and corrupt what God declared to be good. And he wants to twist it and make it try to create promises that cannot deliver. And then sell that to the very people that God loves. And he causes his bait and switch to happen. And he's been into that from the beginning because it's Satan's way at getting back at God. What God declares good, Satan twists. What God makes into a covenant, Satan cheapens until it becomes what is normalized in a society that's pushing God out. But listen, it doesn't have to be that way. Whether you're single, whether you're married, doesn't have to be that way. Uh, in the Bible, the New Testament was written largely in Greek. Greek is a very mathematical language. It's super precise. In fact, it, it is so precise that we have sometimes trouble in English describing just how precise what they're describing is. It's far more precise in English. There just aren't English words for it uh, in, in different ways in Greek. And it's super mathematical. When I was in seminary, Greek was definitely a hard, hard, hard language for me to learn. It's just super mathematical. Hebrew, which the Old Testament is written in, I loved it was easy for me. It was poetic. It was romantic. It was descriptive. It was, it would just, you know, as far as me as one who loves kind of the arts, it was something that just came naturally and easily for me in the Old Testament. And, and God created sex, but he created sex to be passionate. And in the Old Testament, in Song of Solomon, we have this book that most uh, Jewish males were not allowed to read till they were like 30 years old because it was almost like to them rated X or NC 30. And uh, they just had to wait to read it. But it's this picture of a man and a woman, the romantic account of Solomon and his bride coming together. It culminates in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, that's like the, the 
climax, if you will, of the book, and it basically just celebrates love in that chapter, and it says this in chapter 2, so a little earlier on, the woman is speaking of her man as her heart is awakening and feeling passionate about this guy. She says this, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. It's this picture of like, almost give me like these, these you know, some protein, some aphrodisiac-like food. Apples and raisins would be considered those in, in ancient times. And she's saying, for I'm, just, I'm just overcome, I'm so just caught up in this, I'm so passionate about this. Verse 4, or I'm sorry, verse 6. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. By the way, guys, not a bad way for you to embrace your woman. Just saying. Verse 7. Daughters of Jerusalem, she says, all the single ladies, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. She's saying, listen, there is an appropriate time for your heart to open up and awaken to love as you begin to come closer and closer to the permanence that your behavior matches your degree of commitment. And as that is coming closer and closer, then overnight the physical catches up as we looked at a couple weeks ago. But God created sex within marriage to be passionate. Now what's interesting to me is if you look at historical literature and even most historical religious practices regarding sex, you will see time and again that they mostly refer to procreation. That sex was for having babies and that you got to procreate. In fact, in religious practices, they would go and worship and maybe sleep with a temple prostitute in false religions. And their idea was the farmer would go and sleep with the temple prostitutes who were there at the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And they would say, if I go and engage in sexual activity with this prostitute in Ephesus, then it will Artemis is the god of fertility, and so she, the god of fertility, will make my crops do really well. And so they would reach for something like sex to have a, a, almost a worship, a false worship experience to try to get a result in their gardening effort. And it was wrong. And often it would lead, as they would talk about time and again, that the role of sex was for procreation. But I can tell you, in Song of Solomon... And in a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, you do not see that as the main emphasis. It's passionate. It's raw, clean, holy, passionate lovemaking between a husband and a wife. The New Testament, being very precise and mathematical, gives us explicit instructions in how to avoid sexual immorality. We need that. We need very specific things to say, hey, we get tempted, we get carried away by different stuff. How do we pursue purity instead of giving ourselves over to sexual immorality in the New Testament? Well, how do you do that? If you're a married person, how do you recover the passion? Because the passion goes away, right? The first part of our, as a newlywed, you get all there and you're just like, fully passionate and everything is new and it seems great and you're working through the challenges living together but you're you still just got this passion and over time that passion seems to go away which makes sense you move from the infatuation stage but all of a sudden like how does that happen how does the passion go out of marriage it's it's simple life happens you go from paying car payments and you're busy and distracted and you've got kids and jobs and house payments and you lose the priority of your marriage 
You're just keeping up with the facts of life, of family life, the laundry and everything else, and it just, it just wears you down. And listen, I have three kids. We had three kids in three years. I know what it's like. By the way, we had our first kid just after our first uh, anniversary. So we went marriage kids. We skipped the dog stage. We went straight to kids. And we just, you know, I mean, so I know it's like that kids all over the place. And how do you do that? And how do you reignite the passion in your marriage? And gentlemen, let me speak to you for a minute. If it's just, you're just going on, you've got, you've got demands at work, and then you feel like demands at home, and just things, have, and you just feel like you're missing each other. You're keeping up with life, but you're just like ships in the night a little bit. You need to reignite the passion. Take her out to dinner. You need to go ahead and allow her to do something that she really enjoys. Romance her. Initiate passion. Compliment her. Let her do something that she really loves to do. Bring her home. Light some candles, you know, uh, you know, and romance her. And some of you are like, Dave, you don't understand. Like, we got kids. It costs us this much for a babysitter. That, then we can't afford dinner, let alone parking or anything else. And, and, I, and I get it. I know what it's like to have kids everywhere and to be in that young stage of marriage and for finances to be really tight. Well, here's what I'm telling you. Then buy a lock for your bedroom door and eat at home and go in there and kick the kids out at night and don't let them sleep with you till they're 20, you know, and then just kick them out. Just like, there's a place for a husband and wife to have time alone without the kids. And yes, do kids have needs? Yes, but... Part of kids' needs is to know that they're not the center of the universe, and you might need to buy a lock for your bedroom door. What's my point? Reignite the passion. Ladies, you too. You know how to reignite the passion for your man to allow the degree of your commitment to catch up with your behavior, and if your behavior has been wanting or a little bit lacking, and you want your heart to be there, sometimes engaging that physical first, the emotions catch up. You're going to feel closer to your man when you've been intimate in that way, and sometimes it works that way, and other times you're like, but I want to feel emotionally close before I get physically close. And so you work together as a couple to navigate those things so that you are able to be passionate together. If you're single in this room, or perhaps you're single again, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Our culture is training us to arouse or awaken love. Like at my grandpa's memorial, our, our culture has loosened the cinch in the belt. You feel like your pants are slipping a little bit, and it's just tried to make what is sacred casual. And we are experiencing loneliness and confusion on a degree that's astounding and tragic. And we've begun to make marriage all about ourselves instead of others. And let me say, if you're single or single again, don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. If you're single again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells you that it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It doesn't say that to single, never married. By the way, if you're single, never married, and you read that, you're like, yeah! It's, by the way, it's not written to you. Sorry. If you're previously married and you are single again, it's saying, listen, build intentionally. You know what the passion can be like, but you build intentionally is what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is saying in that context. Because God created sex. He thought it up. He created sex to be passionate. But third, God created sex as a covenant. Why do we guard it? Why should we protect it going in? Why can't we just live like the world? Because God created sex as a covenant. 
Proverbs chapter 2, a dad is telling his son how to be wise, how wise living can protect you. And he says this to his son. He says, wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth, listen to this, and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely your house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. What's he saying here? He's saying this unique statement right there in the middle. The unique statement is, and she ignored the covenant she made before God. Well, time out. What's a covenant? Isn't, is she just saying she just, she just is unmarried now or she, she's cheating on her husband? No, he's saying she ignored the covenant she made with her God or before God. What is a covenant? In ancient times and even now, a covenant is the closest holiest, most solemn, and binding compact conceivable. It is the most serious thing that you can imagine. You might remember uh, when you were kids, and I don't recommend this, but when you were kids, uh, I remember we used to do this thing like we would become like blood brothers or, you know, whatever, and you'd like prick your finger and you'd stick it with someone else, and what we know about blood nowadays, I wouldn't recommend it at all doing that. I wouldn't recommend that, but that's what we thought back in the day was like, this means we're really serious. You know, like super serious, so we would do that, and like, ooh, this is like really binding. We have to, you know, obey whatever we're agreeing to. A covenant deals with blood, but it deals with some other things as well. But I want to show you a difference between a contract and a covenant, because sometimes a contract means I, I'm making a promise to you, but I'm really keeping my foot out here, so if things go south over here, I can kind of just slide my way out and be free again, and it's what we do. We learn to do that. You make a contract with your cell phone company, right? And as soon as you're like, I want an iPhone, but I don't like that plan, then you're gonna go to this contract, and you're gonna be like, I'll take the contract you know, fee of like canceling my contract with them. In fact, these people over here will pay for my contract you know, fee for them over there, and I'll slide over here, and we're just taught all the time. We can just break up whenever we want to. We're taught that, and there's a difference between a contract and a covenant because marriage isn't a contract. Here's a contract. I take you for me. A covenant would say, I give myself to you. Do you see the difference? A contract would say, you better do it. A covenant would say, how may I serve you? A contract would say, what do I get? But a covenant says, what can I give? A contract says, I'll meet you halfway. But a covenant says, I'm all in. I'm all in. A contract says, well, pff, I have to. But a covenant says, I want to. And even at times I don't want to, I choose to. Do you see the difference between a contract and a covenant? That a covenant was something deeper. A covenant was something that was holier. God made covenants with people throughout history. At different times, God made a covenant with Noah. He said, listen, after the flood, I will never destroy the entire earth with a flood again. And my sign of that covenant will be a rainbow that you see in the sky. And so he made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. And he himself became the new covenant through Jesus Christ. But we have to understand covenant. And on your outline, we've got seven parts of a covenant. They're already filled in for you, but you might want to write some stuff beside that. The first part of a covenant is blood. Like we talked about, being a blood brother or blood sister, kind of making that compact, that there is no such thing as a covenant without blood. It can't be. 
there was always a sacrifice that was made. In fact, in, in the, the Old Testament times, they would, each person would bring a ram, and they would cut this ram like down the middle, which means it was just really messy, and they put half and half on either side, and the two people coming together, whether it was two nations, whether it was two individuals, they would walk through the runoff, so you got like dead animal over here, dead animal over here, and a trough in the middle that would run down. They would take their shoes off, and they would walk a figure eight through it all the way through it, all the way around. They'd walk all the way through it and out. They would pass through the blood. They would pass through the, the yuck, the mire, the grossness there. But they would get all over their feet. And the idea is, if I keep my part of the covenant, we're all good. But if I break the covenant, what happened to these animals should happen to me. And if you break the covenant, what happened to these animals should happen to you. And we are way above getting a notary in front of lawyers to sign papers here. See what I mean? God said, first of all, without a covenant, there is no, uh, with, without blood, there's no covenant. There's no such thing. They would walk that figure eight, showing that it's the symbol of eternity, that this is binding, that you can't get your way out of it, that you can't say, well, things changed over time. God created sex, and he's super smart, and he's far more detailed than you and I ever are. And God created sex, even the act of sex, as an expression of covenant. That the way he's formed our anatomy, that a man passes through the flesh, not of animals, but of a woman. That there's a bleeding there as anatomy collides. And then there's a symbol of it, a sign of it. God, in his very nature, creating sex intended for it to be a sign of the covenant. There's no covenant without blood. Second, there's a promise uh, that we all agree to this arrangement. Before they kill those animals and walk through all that, they've kind of said, hey, we're, you know, are you willing to make this? Or, okay, let's negotiate a little bit here. And it's what we do at a wedding. When I perform a wedding, you, know, you always have the questions of intent. Do you take this man? Do you take this woman? And then in response we say, I do, right? So it's a, it, you're like, I haven't made my vows yet, but I'm just giving assertion to my intent that I do. I promise. We agree to this arrangement. Do you? Then you have a sacrifice. And again, I described the animal sacrifice that would happen. And those animals were killed not just for killing them, but they were, they were sacrificed, saying before God, Lord, as an act of sacrifice, the sacrifice is to you, that you are the one who's observing this arrangement that we're making. And so we've, we've made this sacrifice here, and, and it just shows the cost, the seriousness. How many of you have ever bought an engagement ring? Yeah, right. Cost, right? Seriousness. How many of you have ever had to change your name? Some of you are relieved. You had a horrible maiden name. You're like, you were like looking for the right person to be like, okay, well, I don't care how he is. As long as I get that last name, we're all good, you know? There's cost involved. There's sacrifice involved. But then there's witnesses. In the Old Testament, when a covenant was made, they would take these huge stones and they would stand them up. So anytime people traveled along that road, they would see this stone there and be like, well, what happened here? It was like a big, it was like a billboard sign. It's like I'm putting up a huge billboard saying, right here a covenant was made. In fact, they often would name the place 
based on the arrangement, the covenant that was made. So you'd be passing by, you'd see the billboard, you'd see the name on the billboard, and you would know, hey, at this exact location is where they killed the animals, they swore a binding oath forever, and it happened right here, and that's why this place is named what it's named. That's how it worked in the Old Testament, that they were visible, that you could see it. In a marriage, we say, you make these vows before God and these Witnesses, right. There are people who have to sign your marriage certificate and it gets filed with the state of California and they have to be present and they have to put their address and they have to sign that I was here during that ceremony and, and they're basically swearing to it that I saw with my own eyes, heard with my own ears, this arrangement that was made. And next, there is the oath, the unbreakable promise or the consequences would occur. If I break my part, what happened to the animals should you know, happen to me. And if you break your part, what happened to these animals should happen to you. But there's oath. In marriage, we call those vows. We're making the oath. That we're making vows to one another. Not just promises, but something greater. And then there's a meal, a celebration. And it's such a beautiful picture because I, I drew the relational graph for you a couple weeks ago. Remember that? You got the the spiritual at the bottom, then you got the social, then you have the intellectual, and then you have the uh, emotional part. And all those four lines are supposed to grow across to the degree of commitment, which is marriage. You start at zero and you work your way to degree of commitment. But the top one is physical, and our world says physical and emotional will go over right away, and then it gets top-heavy and it collapses. Well, our relationship with Jesus is very similar. You're the church. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And there are times like you and me, we wish, God, I wish I could just hear you or see you. you can just, I can just hug you. Like the disciples got to like sit down and have a meal with you. And I, I can't even do that. And he gives us his Holy Spirit as a deposit. But, but right now there's just something tangible and missing about God. And for some of you that causes a conflict in your faith. But please understand he's simply drawing a picture of a covenant relationship. That as those four other parts grow across to the degree of commitment, there's the point when you and I die, and instantly we are put in the presence of the Lord. Overnight, there is a marriage supper of the Lamb that happens when the church has been gathered to him, and we have this ultimate wedding celebration before God, this ultimate meal. In fact, the Bible describes it probably the best wine that's ever been made in the history of winemaking is saved and reserved for the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the church comes together before God, it's going to be the party to end all parties. It is the ultimate wedding celebration. When we refer to ourselves as the bride of Christ, that shouldn't be weird for us as guys. Because we basically are saying it is that time when we've invested in these other areas, our spiritual and our, our emotional, and we've gone to our social, and we've gone to the intellectual side, and all those are growing. But, Lord, I just can't wait to be with you in your presence. And the marriage supper of the Lamb, we are with him. Jesus said to the thief on the cross who put his faith and trust in Christ as they're both dying on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. The scriptures say that the dead in Christ will rise first, that my grandma has beat me there. She's already gone ahead. She's, I'm not going to win because I'm the living. Those who have died, they've gone ahead. They're, they're, they don't, they're not second place because they died. They're actually first place. They're going to be in the presence of the Lord first. And then we, if we're alive at the return of the Lord, we're caught up with him in the air. There is a moment when this marriage celebration finally happens. And that's why you're going to feel like we're a little bit engaged with Jesus, that there's this like almost but not yet in life. 
that we are with and we're in full relationship and he's given us his presence, his Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing that we will physically be in his presence someday. There's a celebration. And then there's a sign. We have the sign of the Holy Spirit in us, but there's a visible assurance and reminder. In the covenant of Noah, God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and this is a sign of my covenant, and and it's going to be an ongoing sign. This thing is not going to stop, and it's called the rainbow, right? How many of you have seen the rainbow? Guess what? That was still for, for Noah, but every time you and I see it, it's a reminder. God made a promise, an everlasting promise, with Noah, and whenever we see it, that's what that rainbow means. Now, how many of you ever looked up at the sun sometimes, and it's one of those days here in the Central Valley where there's a lot of, like, humidity and, and farm junk, I don't know, what pollen in the air, and your asthma kicks in? But, you know, you look up at the sky, and you see, like, a sunbow. How many of you ever seen that? You see, like, a rainbow kind of, like, around the sun, middle of the day, right? So, see, if, if we're at ground level, and when you and I look at a rainbow, it's a half circle, right? Because the earth gets in our way. But if it's unencumbered, if we, do, if we don't have that blockage of the earth in the way, it's a complete circle. You and I have a ring if you're married. And this thing is precious metal. It is extracted out of rock. And it is in the symbol having neither beginning nor end. It's an ongoing commitment. It's an ongoing relationship. And then we wear it visibly in our culture to say, I am uniquely covenanted to one and he or she to me. There is a sign. In old times, they would often, after a wedding night, the first time a husband and wife were intimate, they would cut out that piece of bed sheet that had the stain, because sex is sticky and it's messy. They would cut that stain out, and they would keep that piece of cloth. Have you ever saw the movie Braveheart with William Wallace, and he's always holding that little handkerchief? That's what that is. He's not going to blow his nose with that thing. It's, it means something different, okay? So he's just saying, like, this is it. And that's why he hung on to it. Because in the movie, if you watch the movie, his bride was taken from him. And it's his sign of saying, I'm being faithful to the covenant. This is my sign of the covenant uh, to her. God makes a covenant with us. Jesus Christ has a sign of the covenant on himself right now. You ever wonder why Jesus... You know, he was crucified, then he was buried, then he rose from the dead, and he wandered around, and Thomas, when he doubted, said, well, I won't believe it till I see, you know, touch where Jesus, the nails were in his hands and in his feet, and see that where the spear stuck him in the side, and Jesus shows him his scars. And Jesus goes up into heaven, and you know what? We're going to see his scars. You would think, well, he goes to heaven, he's going to be renewed, he'll be changed, just like you and me. Nope, he's God. And God is saying, I bear on my body the marks forever marks of the covenant I made with you, the new covenant that we don't have to kill the animals anymore, but that you violated the terms of the covenant, but I bear in my body and on myself the fact that I was the perfect, unblemished lamb to be sacrificed for you. It was my blood that was spilled. It was my body that was given for you, because you violated the terms of the covenant because of sin, and sin separates, but I have now reconciled what was lost. I got to tell you something in this room. I understand some of you are in really tough marriages, and I understand that some of you 
have been living like the world and just haven't even considered or known much different. And I want you to know that God is in the business of reconciling that which is lost. That's his whole thing. That's what God does. That's how much he loves you and me. And if you are in a marriage relationship, I want you to understand something. Satan will right now in your marriage do anything he can to keep you out of bed. If you are entertaining negative thoughts about your spouse, I guarantee you the enemy is whispering negative thoughts about you to her. What do you need to do? Take your thoughts captive. Make them obedient to Christ. That voice going on in your head, that's not your voice. That voice going on in your head is from an evil one who seeks to kill and destroy what you have covenanted before the Lord. Some of you are sexually addicted. Some of you have allowed pornography or other practice to come in and hijack your life, and you're compulsive about it. And I want to just encourage you that there is a group within Celebrate Recovery that deals with those areas and helps people pursue purity. And you might be married or you might be single, but it has taken over your life, and you've got to deal with that as you're beginning to repair a relationship with your spouse. And it meets here every Monday night at 7. And you're not condemned for walking in. You're loved when you walk in. And you finally get hope. But I guarantee you the enemy will do everything he can to try to keep you from coming here on a Monday night. But let me ask, how long are you going to do that? How is five more years going to help you? What if no change happens over five years? It's time to come. It's time to pursue purity. Make a change. Some of you are single. And I want to encourage you today to build a covenant relationship, to realize that God looks at this issue of our sexuality as a covenant, and he intends for that to be permanent. Now, here's the beautiful thing about a covenant. Oh, it's so different than having to do a prenuptial agreement and hoping that a person keeps their under the promise and does that. There's a security where our behavior matches our degree of commitment. And so we come together in our intimacy, and we just say, thank you. And we can feel free with one another and passionate and secure, and it builds security for our children and their future. And that's what God intended. But Satan wants to hijack that because, see, making a covenant, if you just make a covenant with someone, well, that's a wedding. But keeping a covenant, that's a marriage. We can make a covenant, but that's just a wedding. But keeping it, that's a marriage. I want you to know today that Jesus Christ is sufficient for all our deficiencies. That he forgives when we follow the world's pattern of sex. That he forgives when we have mistreated and violated others. That he forgives when you and I have taken what he made beautiful and we've screwed it up. That he forgives us. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.